0: Thank you for our time together. We thank you that we can study your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at your promises, the promises related to the restoration of Israel, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to uh, have these things sink in our hearts that we may persevere, that we may be excited about our future, that we may flee the sins that so easily entangle us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today, dear ones, you remember last time we left off in the book of Proverbs, and we talked about how in the section about the seven sins that God hates, one of them was dissensions. And the dissensions, we said, were caused by men who were dividing other people all for the sake of personal gain. And so what we wrestled with is that, yes, the church must crush dissensions in a sense. We must address them and contend for the faith. But we ask the question, when does our contending for the faith become dissensions in and of themselves? And so what we want to wrestle with is when should we contend for the faith and when should we let it go? And one of the categories that we've always had here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship is that we should be those who contend for the five solas of the Reformation because in it you really have the person and work of Christ and any attack on any of the solas is an attack on the gospel. And so remember, the solas of the Reformation are that we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the Scriptures alone, all by God's grace alone, and all to the glory of God alone. But what I want to lay out for you is an expansion of that idea. And the reason I say this is, think of the, um, does anybody in here know who the Hamburglar is? When I was a kid... When I was a kid, you know, at McDonald's, they had the Hamburglar and they had Ronald McDonald and all these little characters, right? Well, here's my idea. I don't think anyone wakes up during the day, puts on the Hamburglar outfit and says, "Ah, I'm going to steal the glory of God or attack the glory of God. It doesn't work that way. The way it works typically is by people attacking, whether willingly or unwillingly or unknowingly, the promises of God. And so, what I want to show is that when we attack the promises of God, I'm not saying we are going to do that, but if someone were to do that, they're attacking the glory of God. And I want to give you a case study in which the restoration of Israel to the Apostle Paul was the pinnacle proof that God was going to be faithful to our promises. And in fact, we reach a crescendo in Paul giving glory to God because God is faithful to his promises to future national ethnic Israel. So what I want to lay out then is that the idea of the restoration of Israel is not some subsidiary doctrine, at least to the Apostle Paul, and it's something that we should contend for. That's my goal in setting this up. And again, we'll see the glory of God is indeed at stake in this discussion. So with that, let's begin by talking about the assurance of the believer that we see in Romans chapter 8. And the reason I want to do that is I want to show you what God promises to us. And then the question he must wrestle with is if in fact God has made us promises that are absolutely assured, what about the promises he made to Israel? Will God be faithful to those? That's the issue. So let's begin in Romans 8. I'm not going to make a lot of comments. I'll just read and we'll just kind of look at the end verse that's crescendo. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Here Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, now here's a citation, Psalm 44, 22, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, he says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what I want you to see in this promise is obviously there's nothing in creation that will prevent us from reaching glory. Remember the great promise in Romans 8.30? I couldn't fit it all on the screen. But it was those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those that he justified, he also what? He glorified. And this glorification is where you and I will be given our resurrected bodies, reigning with Christ, never to sin with him again, or against him again, and to always be in his glorious kingdom. And so what Paul is saying then at the end here is that there's nothing that can prevent those promises. But what he must do now is, if that's true from Romans 9 through 11, Paul is going to be wrestling with the question, what about Israel? If God wasn't faithful to the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, why should we be confident that he will be faithful to his promises to us? And this is widely recognized across scholarship. In other words, if you have an Arminian scholar, they will say, yep, that's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. If you have a Calvinist scholar, they will say, yep, that's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. If you have a replacement theologian, they'll say that's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. If you have a premillennialist like myself, they'll say, yes, that's what Romans 9 through 11 is about. So let me say to you here, Douglas Moo, just to show you how this is universally accepted. Douglas Moo, by the way, he is a Reformed scholar. He used to teach at Trinity. He is a very good scholar in the book of Romans. He himself was a premillennialist and is a premillennialist because of this text that we're going to be looking at today. And so that is very high praise to him from me for being a Reformed scholar and knowing that's what the, the Bible teaches, that there's going to be a literal restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Listen to what Douglas Moo says. Douglas Moo says, Paul makes clear that the problem of Israel is at the same time the problem of God's word and ultimately of God himself. For God has adopted Israel, revealed himself to her, bound her to him with his covenants, and given her his law, the temple service, and his promises. Do these now mean nothing? Has God revoked these blessings and gone back on his word to Israel? Many Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, in Rome and elsewhere, must have thought that this was the logical implication of Paul's radical critique of the Jewish assumption of guaranteed salvation by ethnicity. And if God had indeed reneged on his earlier word, the consequences were dire for more than Jews, how, he says, for how could Christians trust such a God to fulfill his promises to them? Unquote. That's what's at stake from Romans 9 through 11. So in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is going to prove that God is faithful to his promises, including the promises to restore national ethnic Israel. And that will be the culmination of his argument. And then right after that, you know what you're going to have? Let me just pull up my pointer, make sure it's ready. Oops, I just turned it off. Um, You'll have another crescendo just like you have here at the end of Romans 11. Oh, how unfathomable are God's ways. When does that come? After we see that, yes, Israel will be restored. So if God is being glorified by the Apostle Paul who speaks authoritatively for Christ about the restoration of Israel, is not the attack on the restoration of Israel an attack against the glory of God? And therefore, is that not one of the solas? And is it therefore not something we should contend for? That's my argument. And so let's lay this out. And what I'm going to do is I'll go fairly quickly through Romans 9. I want to sit in Romans 11, verses 25 through 28 for some time. So I'll keep it moving. But I want you to see enough of the highlights in Romans 9 through 10 and into chapter 11 so that you see the issue is indeed Israel Israel. And you'll see some of the arguments that are made. So first of all, let me give you a little outline. Notice here on this slide, Romans 8, it's all about the promise of glory, that we absolutely can go to the bank, that we will reach glory as believers in Christ. The thorny question is, what about Israel's promises? If God wasn't faithful to them, then it's in doubt that he'll be faithful to us. Uh, Romans 9 What Paul begins, and again, I'm trying to give a gloss for an entire chapter in which Paul makes multiple points, but the basic thrust of Romans 9 is that not every Israelite, that is of national ethnic Israel, was part of the elect. So if you can think about a huge circle being all ethnic Israelites, I should have had this on the screen probably, think of the smaller circle within that larger circle that there's only some Israelites that are actually part of God's elect. That's his argument. Why is that important? Because it shows us that God had never gone back on any of his promises. The promises were not to every single individual Israelite simply because of their ethnicity, but it was based on the promises that God gave to those whom he's chosen. And that's the argument there. When we get to Romans 10... Paul's going to show us that the Old Testament indeed predicted Gentile inclusion and Jewish exclusion for a time. So therefore, God is being faithful to exactly what he's shown us through the prophets. God is faithful. We get to Romans 11, and here's the coup de grace, or as my brother would say, the coup de grace. National ethnic Israel will be restored in the future, and that leads to what? The great praise to God for his unfathomable ways the fact that he's the great promise keeper, even when human beings are not. And there's where he's going to be glorified. Okay, so with that, let's begin in Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read in verses 6 through 7. And again, I'm just giving you highlights to show you that, yes, all the way through 9 through 11 of Romans, the issue is Israel. Notice he begins, he says, "...but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel." Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Now I want you to notice here that in blue, Paul says it is not as though the word of God has failed. What aspect of God's word? Well, I think specifically the promises in the Old Testament for the restoration of Israel. And I'll show you, if we can get all the way to the end of this message, I'll show you time and time again the term for restoration is used in Jeremiah, in Malachi, and Hosea. The promises that Israel's promises of a Davidic king reigning in Jerusalem with all of the land promises is something that God is going to fulfill. That's what is, con- is concerning here to the apostle Paul. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, notice here in the box, he gives an explanatory form. So what he's explaining now is how do we know that the word of God has not failed? Well, notice the first element of Paul's proof. He says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, as we read that phrase, we have two choices. We can think in that phrase where he says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel that. What Paul means by that is that Israel is comprised not just of national ethnic Jews, but also now Gentiles, and therefore he's really referring to the church. But that is not Paul's point here. Why do we know that? Because notice he goes on to say that of Abraham's descendants, literally in the the Greek, by the way, it's sperm, it's the seed. This has to do with the seed promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. Then you get to Genesis chapter 12, and you see that the seed is going to come from Abraham. Later, you see it's going to come from Isaac. You see it's going to come from Jacob. You get to Genesis 49, you see the seed is going to come from Judah. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, it's going to come from David. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah... Then what? It's going to be David. That's the seed promise. But notice here he's saying that it wasn't every single descendant of Abraham that was part of the elect. But he says rather, this is Genesis 21, 12, it's through Isaac your descendants will be named. Why is that important? Because Abraham had another son, namely Ishmael. But just because Ishmael was genetically related to Abraham didn't mean he was a son of promise. No, it went through Isaac. Isaac. So why is that important? Because we're talking about, again, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're not talking about the church. So when Paul says they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, what he is certainly saying is that if you look at the entirety, of, think of a circle that represents all Israel, every single Israelite that's ever been born into this world. What Paul is saying is that, no, it's not every one of them that's been part of the elect. It's a smaller group. That's his point, and therefore what? Well, God's promises haven't failed. Yes, Brian.
1: This argument for uh, salvation being uh, an Israelite, national salvation, Nicodemus was a Jew. Jesus said directly to him, I tell you the truth, you must be born again. Yes. So doesn't that kind of... So they these people that believe that they must not believe in what Jesus said
0: to their people. you follow what I'm saying? Um, yeah, in other words, Israelite unbelievers just don't believe Messiah. Yeah, there's one way to salvation. Jesus said that right to Nicodemus. Exactly. That's right. And that's an issue that he'll come to in Romans 10, that the Israelites try to have their own self-made righteousness, a righteousness that was apart from what God had actually revealed. And then he gets into Romans 10, 4, that... For those who believe in Jesus Christ, he's the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe, right? And in fact, we'll just look at that in just a moment. But absolutely, so they stumbled over the stumbling stone that was laid in Zion, something that Paul will say later here in Romans 9. But the big issue that I want you to see is Paul begins by saying, no, God's word has not failed because he never promised every ethnic Israelite the promises, but rather the elect. But that's point one. And if you stop there... Paul makes about another 14 theological points by the time you get to Romans chapter 11. We have to allow Paul to give his promises and his points as he unleashes them. The reason I say this is, yes, uh, Norm, we'll we'll have sometimes debates where I will see the only passage those that I'm debating want to talk about is this one because they think it refers to the church. Yes? Uh, When you talk about Israel, The name
1: Israel really didn't come into play until after Jacob, right? His name was Tain. So if you talk about Abraham, are you saying that all of his descendants were called Israelites?
0: No, in fact, that's the point that I think Paul is making is that there's a seed promise of the elect. And that promise that goes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it goes through the sons that are the sons of promise. So when you get to, for example, Romans 9, 10 through 13, it's Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But yeah. isn't it interesting that in each case, what he's showing is a descendant of Abraham and then a descendant of Isaac that, in fact, is not part of the elect and then one that yeah. is? Okay. So it's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau, even though genetically they're coming from the same family. Right. Okay. Yep, exactly right. Okay. So okay. that's why, by the way, good point, Norm. Let me cite this from, uh, I think I had a quote. From Moo, yeah. I just want to cite Douglas Moo so you know that Moo is saying the same thing that I'm saying. So I'm not um, coming up with some obscure thing that in Romans nine six when he says, "For they are not all Israel who descended from Israel," that is not a reference to the church. Listen to what Moo says. Moo says, "Quote: Paul is not saying that it is not only those who are of Israel that are Israel." But he's saying it is not all those who are of Israel that are Israel. In other words, what Mu is saying is, is that Paul's point is not that there's a Gentile nature to Israel. That's not Paul's point here. So Paul's point is that if you look at all ethnic Israelites, any person that is genetically connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's promise was never to all of them. It was to a limited group, a smaller subset of national ethnic Israel. That's what his point is. And so Douglas Moo is saying the same thing. But I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 10, verses 2 through 3, because in Romans 10, I want you to see some of the arguments that he makes so that you see as we get to chapter 11, again, this is all about Israel. It's all about the promises that God had given. Notice here in Romans 10, verses 2 through 3, Paul says... For I testify about them. Now, who's them? Well, it's Israel. That they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So notice they had a zeal for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. What kind of knowledge? That which God had revealed. And so a good way to summarize this, when you look at Romans 10, 2 through 3, is that the Israelites became spiritual do-it-yourselfers. Everyone knows what the do-it-yourselfers do around the house. They say, I don't need the electrician. I'll go out on my own. And I'm going to wire up my whole place. Their place burns down. They, should, they say, oh, I should have gotten, gotten an electrician, right? That doesn't always happen. But my point is, that's what the Israelites did. They became spiritual do-it-yourselfers. They went beyond what God had revealed in the scriptures. Uh, notice Romans ten four: For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, now the end of the law, the term end there, telos, many of you have heard of the teleological argument, meaning because there's a goal or a design inherent to the creation, therefore there must be a designer. That's called the teleological argument. It comes from the root telos. Well, that same root is in the end. And so some people will say, well, Christ is the goal or the design of the law. That is true, but he's also the termination. In other words, the debate in that is, is he the termination of the law, or is he the goal of the law? And the answer is yes. Because once the goal is realized, you don't go back. That's the point in Colossians 2.16, where he says that these things were a mere uh, shadow, but the substance is Christ. Bob taught us very well in the book of Galatians that once the Messiah comes on the scene of history, you don't go back to, remember, the pedagogos, the tutor. So the idea is that Christ is not only the goal of the law, he is the termination of it. There's no going back. We have a new lawgiver, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're bound under the terms of the new covenant. So we're not lawless, we're not antinomian, but we went from one lawgiver, Moses, to the new lawgiver that Moses himself prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18:15, and that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 21, that even though he's no longer under the law of Moses, he's under the law of Christ. He's not lawless. That's the way we are. So that's the termination. The Jews didn't see the termination of the Mosaic law. They wanted it to continue. They went into a righteousness without Christ. Now, the very end of Romans 10, I want you to see Paul's point here is that it was prophesied by God himself that Gentiles would be included and Israelites would be excluded for a time. Therefore, obviously, God's promises have not failed. Romans 10, 20 through 21 This is from Isaiah 65 that he's citing, verses 1 through 2. It says, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Verse 21, he says, but as for Israel, so notice the subject is still Israel. He says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient in obstinate people. That's Isaiah 65 too. So the, the point is, God had prophesied that yes, there would be rejection by the Jews, there would be an ingathering of Gentiles, and it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 in the law, where again, Abraham would be a blessing, not just to the Israelites, but all the nations, but you see it here also in the prophets. That's the point. So we're still talking about Israel. Now, for the sake of time, let's get to Romans 11. Turn your Bibles, if you will, Actually, you know what? Let me, let me put up Romans 11.1 1 first, and I'll have you turn your Bibles. But you can kind of get your Bibles towards Romans 11. Notice Romans 11.1. 1. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Let's stop there. What people is he referring to? Well, of course, he's referring to national ethnic Israel. Okay? No, notice the answer in blue. It's the strongest way in Greek to negate something. Meganoita, may it never be. It's not even a possibility that he would reject them. Why? Because then he'd be a liar. So it's not even a possibility. And then notice the evidence Paul gives very, uh, he gets very micro here. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. The implication is Paul, of course, must be one of the elect. He is of an Israelite. Therefore, God has interminated the promises to every single Israelite. That's what he's saying there. But now we're going to start shifting toward the promise that there will be a restoration for national, ethnic Israel. And I say those together because it's not elect Israel. It's not, of course, these people will be elect. But the promise isn't for Israel made of Jews and Gentiles. You're going to see the promise that Paul is making is to a future restoration of national, ethnic Israel. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 11, verses 11 through 12. 11 through 12. So now he's dealing with national ethnic Israel. Notice Paul says, I say then they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Again, may it never be. The falling there would be into perdition permanently. That would be the idea of the fall. And he says, but by their transgression salvation has come to the gentiles to make them jealous. But notice verse 12, he says, now if their transgression that is of Israel, is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So the idea then is the fulfillment of Israel to their national promises is going to be even greater riches than their temporal hardening. Because if their temporal hardening brought the gospel and salvation to the Gentiles, what Paul is saying, it's even going to be greater when they're restored. In fact, to prove that, notice in Romans 11:15 on the screen, he says, for if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So when he says but life from the dead, he's referring to the resurrection. The resurrection of all believers is timed and tied to the restoration of national ethnic Israel. Read Daniel chapter 12. When does the restoration happen? Well, at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. And it's in the 70th week of Daniel that you have the resurrection. And so that's the idea, is the resurrection for believers is tied to the restoration of Israel. You can't have one without the other. It's like peanut butter and jelly, Amos and Andy, Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, um, You get the picture, right? Tommy Kramer and Ahmad Rashad. Uh, um, Well, anyway, you get the idea. They go together. You can't get rid of them. In fact, let's look at evidence for this. Acts 3, 19 through 21. Turn your Bibles there, and I want to give you a preview of this idea of restoration. Acts 3, verses 19 through 21. Remember there, Peter is giving his second sermon at Pentecost, right after Pentecost. And I want you to notice that he's on this theme of if you repent and fill up the full number that will need to repent, we don't know when that time will be, but God is going to send Christ from heaven and he's going to restore all things. Acts 3, 19 through 21, Peter says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped out in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus. Now stop there. Stop there. Wait a minute, is Jesus being sent from heaven? Is that dependent upon my repentance? Well, Peter's idea is that God knows when the last person will repent. We don't. But the idea as people repent and come to faith in Christ, remember, faith and repentance are two sides of the salvific coin. If you're repenting, you're repenting and turning from unbelief and you're turning to faith. If you have faith, it's implied you've repented. So both go hand in hand. So if you talk about repentance, you're talking about saving faith. The idea is that as people come to faith in Christ, a bucket's being filled, and when it's completely full, only God knows. But when that day occurs, whether it's tonight, whether it's five weeks from now, five months, 500 years, we have no idea when that day will come. The Lord knows. But at that point, he's going to send Jesus. And so notice he says, And that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until what? Notice the until. Bob Dewey has said, and until cannot be used for a non-event. I cite my favorite scholar, Bob Dewey. Well said, exactly right. Until the period of the restoration of all things which, he, which God spoke about by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Notice the term restoration. That comes from apokatastasis. Apokatastasis means to cause to stand. So think of someone who's fallen over and you help them stand, you restore them. That's apocatostasis. And the idea is the restoration of the Davidic throne, the restoration of the promises of Israel, the restoration unto eternal life, the restoration of physical life, the restoration of the creation, the restoration of all things is tied to the establishment of Israel. Remember, in Acts 1-6, the disciples asked, Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel and that is the verbal cognate of apocostostasis. It's the same term. And so where did they get that idea? Do you remember? Because Jesus had taught them about the kingdom of God for 40 days in his resurrected body. Their conclusion is that now you're going to restore the kingdom of God or the, I'm sorry, the kingdom to Israel, very important. And Jesus notice doesn't say, hey, where'd you get that goofy idea? But he says it's not for you to know when. It's not for you to know the times of the epochs what are set in my Father's authority, but you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So the disciples were in the same position you and I are. We don't know the day and the hour. We have no idea when Jesus is returning. We know that he's returning. We don't know when he's returning. That's imminence. Imminence. The doctrine of imminence, you need two things. You need the certain, absolute certain nature of an event. Number one. And the absolute unknowability of when that event will occur. Do we have both at the coming of Christ and the restoration of Israel? Yes. Do we know when the rapture is going to be? No. Do we know it's certain? Yes. That's imminence. So when people say, well, hey, how come it's been 2,000 years if you believe it's imminent? They don't understand the doctrine of imminence. Imminence doesn't say that it has to happen within a certain time frame, only that it will happen and can happen at any moment, at any time. That's the doctrine of imminence. Two things you need the certainty of the event, and the unknowability of the event. That's what you need. And that's what we have with the return of Christ, the restoration of all things. Okay, so that's the theme. Romans eleven fifteen. 15, he's already priming us for the idea that, yes, the, re- the re- restoration of Israel is going to be life from the dead. You and I will be restored when this happens. Okay, so we keep going here, and I want to now conclude. Oops, let me, before I put this up, Let's turn just a little further to Romans 11, 17 through 18. Because I want you to see this argument that Paul has promised that, number one, you and I, as Gentiles, were grafted into the promises of Israel, not the other way around. And the reason Paul has to say that is so that we as Gentiles are not arrogant against them. And, dear ones, there is arrogance today in replacement theologians against Jerusalem and against, and I mean that as far as Israel, You see it online. No, all their promises are done. They failed the covenant. Well, the natural question is when you fail the covenant daily, the new covenant, because we all do sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth isn't in us. I don't think that's just one time. I think it's the rest of our lives. We're going to be those who fall short. Do we lose the promises? Well, Paul said nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So notice here Romans eleven seventeen 17 through 18. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off, that would be natural Israel. And you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You and I were grafted into the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Bob DeWay one time when he was giving a sermon, I think he astutely said that not only were we grafted into their promises, but their persecution. That's exactly right. The persecution inherent to Israel is now ours. The Israelites are the obvious haves, and those who are outside of that are the have-nots. And there's always been a battle between the haves and the have-nots since Cain and Abel. Abel's a have. He has the blessings. Cain can't stand it. He murders him. The same applies to Israel. The same applies to you. Now, can other people genuinely repent, come to faith in Christ, and become partakers, become haves themselves? Oh, yes. But no, they'd rather hate God, hate his people, and live as idolaters. That's the truth of human depravity. So the idea here is that you and I were grafted into their promises. And so then Paul goes on to say that he can graft them in again. They're the natural olive branches. And so we crescendo now here in a sense in Romans 11, 25. And this is where I want to stay, um, if I can, for the next even half hour. Because it's so profound. Let's take this part by part. Notice here in verse 25, Paul says, "...for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery." Let's stop there. What is this mystery? The term musterion in in the New Testament mystery has to do with something that was formerly concealed but is now revealed. And we have to wrestle with, well, what mystery is Paul referring to? Obviously, it cannot be the mystery that there would be a, a future kingdom for Israel. That was revealed in the Old Testament. No, the mystery is how the Israelites would be hardened... And yet they would be brought back so that indeed God's promises would be fulfilled. Here Paul is going to reveal to us the way this will occur. He says, so that you will notice he doesn't want us to be wise in our own estimation. He doesn't want us to be arrogant. Notice he says that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, the first thing I want you to look at here... Is notice the until. Does, does everyone see the until? Again, Bob said very astutely, you can't have an until for a non event. Okay, so let's think of a couple of examples of that. Think of Luke twenty one twenty four. Jesus says that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled. What that until means is that there will be a reversal. Then Jerusalem won't be trampled under. Why? Because they'll be restored. Okay? Let's look at some other ones. Look at, uh, turn your Bibles to Matthew 23, 39. Matthew 23, 39. This is Jesus leaving the temple. And by the way, you know what? Um, I'm such a dope, I didn't put it down. Does somebody have it in their Bible? Brian, do you happen to have that? You can read it to us. I remember the gist of it. This is where Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, citing from Psalm 118. Yes, go ahead. Matthew 23, 29. Uh, 39. Oh, 39.
1: Where is it? There it is. For I say to you from now... From now on you will not see me until you, until you say blessed
0: be, blessed, be he, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's citing a messianic psalm, Psalm 118, that's about the coming one, the Messiah. And he's saying to the leadership of Israel, you will not see me again in your temple until you say what? You're the Messiah until you acknowledge that. So notice the until is important because I I will debate with these Reformed theologians who are replacement, and by the way, I'm Reformed in most of my, well, all of my soteriology. But they will say, no, the promises of Israel are done. There's never going to be a reestablishment of this future temple that you dream about. And I say, well, wait a minute. He says, you will not see me again until. There's an until. There's going to be a restoration. Think about another one. You don't have to turn to it, but you can jot it down this is Luke twenty two eighteen. 18. Jesus says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. Does that mean he's never going to drink of the fruit of the vine? Well, of course not. There's an until. Of course he's not going to do it now, but when the restoration of all things happen, he will. So until is very important. You can't have an until for a non-event. I love that. Keep that in your mind. Keep saying it to yourself. When you read this, you cannot have an until for something that won't occur. What will occur? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Just as Jesus taught in Luke 21 24. There's going to be a future where all the Gentiles have come in and God turns his attention towards Israel. Yes, Eric.
1: I think you just answered my question. I was, my question was going to be on the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I'm thinking that that means two things. Number one, you know, when God Knows when God deems that all of his elect among the Gentiles have been saved, okay? That's one meaning of it, and I think that's valid. And then I think that the verse you, I can't remember the verse you cited on the age of the Gentiles. In other words, the second possible meaning of that would be when the age of the
0: Gentiles ends. So, could that term
1: mean both of those things?
0: Absolutely, they're both wrapped together. Very well said. Remember, we are living in the gap between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel. So, and by the way, there will be theologians you'll read, they'll say, well, no, there's no inherent gap in the Daniel 9, 24 through 27 text. They'll say, we premillennialists are reading that into the text. I'll be doing a whole message about that sometime on my channel that is false. Daniel himself builds a gap in the text because Jesus Christ is cut off and crucified after the 69th week, But prior to the 70th week. So that's a gap. And if you get rid of the gap, you get rid of the crucifixion of Christ. Because Christ isn't crucified during the 69 weeks or in the 70th week, it's in the gap. So there's an inherent gap that Daniel himself gives. Jesus was crucified in the gap. So get rid of the gap. Get rid of the crucifixion of Christ. Yes, Bob.
2: I had a discussion with a couple of brothers after church last week about this. Um, the the, seven, the prophecy of the seventy weeks. Yes. I think it's very significant. It's in Daniel nine. Are there some who just poo poo the whole thing and say this isn't about time? What would you do with it? In other words, do the treacherous and amillennialists and postmillennialists claim the first 69 aren't significant? What do they do with that?
0: Yeah, they claim and this is for whether it's Sam Storm's the Millennialist, or whether it's the preterists which are typically postmillennialists but a lot of them are amillennial as well. They all say the 69 and 70 weeks are figurative and that so they don't try to give exact mathematical understanding of how they're fulfilled where we do. And then they say it all was fulfilled in 70 AD. So that's their next move. Well, the problem with that, of course, is if that's the fulfillment of the abomination that causes desolation, remember in 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness that does the abomination that causes desolation, he's killed by the parousia of the coming of Christ. Well, now you have to have the coming of Christ in 70 AD. That's a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. Well,
2: then there's also a break within the 69.
0: Yes, between the 7 and the 62, for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and then. So then it seems to
2: imply that it is about time periods.
0: Exactly.
2: And it's significant in regard to what happens in history. Exactly right. And it's significant in regard to what happened, the crucifixion of Messiah. Amen. Leading up to it. It seems to me like it's totally contrived. It is contrived. To just throw it out and say, well, it's all figurative.
0: Exactly How's that
2: not just flat out liberalism? It
0: is.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Because it's like saying, well, Jesus didn't really walk in water.
0: Right. Just get rid of the details.
2: Yeah, get rid of all the details. And the the one time I debated, I did a public debate with a, uh, a millennials, I think. Yeah. I think that was his position. He, he ran into these things that you just throw your hands up. Yep. Whereas if you can have a reading where you don't have to do that, right the best reading is one that the authorial intent can stay in place, and you're not changing did the, Daniel think this is just mystical and not literal? That's right. And clearly not. He, he did think it was literal.
0: Amen. And you know, one of the best readings that I've ever seen on Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy was written by a man named Harold Honer. He was a theologian out of Dallas. And we have his book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. I highly recommend that book. What he shows, I think, very conclusively is that if you look at the 69 weeks part of the prophecy, get rid of the last seven years. The 69 weeks, if you do the math, it's 173,880 days. If the decree was given in 444 BC on March 5th, the decree by Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which is the most likely referent, and you take 173,880 days, you come to the 10th day of Nisan, AD 33 is the fulfillment of the 69th week. Why is that important? Because it's the very day that Christ comes riding into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes riding in, and is he accepted as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? No, he's rejected. He's rejected, and then four days later, now we're in the gap between the 69th and the 70th week, he's crucified. But it's in the gap. And the rest of the time of the Gentiles is in that gap, uh, you remember Jim Palmer, one of our elders here? He had a little bit of a southern accent living in Indiana. He lived uh, he moved away some time ago to be closer to his kids in Racine, Wisconsin. And he would often say to me, He goes, Eric, if the first sixty nine weeks were about Israel, what do you think the seventieth week's about? My like, good point, Jim. If you read Daniel nine, twenty four through twenty seven very carefully, it's about the restoration of Jerusalem. Now, I'm not saying that you and I are unimportant. The church is unimportant. It's all part of God's plan. We didn't go from plan A to plan B. We're still on plan A. But the idea is the 70th week of Daniel is about the restoration of Israel. That's why the the fulfill the fulfillment of the Gentiles will be done. What we're really wondering about is when does the beginning of the 70th week happen? That's when the end of the fullness of the Gentiles is. We don't know. We don't know. Um, So that's the issue. Now, let's keep moving on. Eric, can I just ask a quick question?
1: Yes. I'm just wondering with some of the verses that you had us read with the until, if um, readers today confuse or neglect the near and far fulfillment of these prophecies. Yes. You know, they're just not taught. We're very fortunate that you guys teach that so much and so well, but they don't understand that there's a near and then a far fulfillment to these things.
0: Absolutely, especially when it comes to things like the day of the Lord, where in Isaiah 13 you have the promise that there's going to be a future day of the Lord. In fact, every sinner on the entire planet will be judged. Well, then he goes to the near-term judgment of Babylon to prove it. In other words, the future Babylon that will be rebuilt in the day of the Lord in our day, in the future from us, the evidence that God will throw that down Is that he did so with the near term Babylon in Isaiah's day with the Medo Persians in 539 BC. So, exactly right, there's a near and a far. You see the same thing in Joel. The book of Joel talks about this locust plague. And that's a foreshadowing of a greater problem if the Israelites don't repent. If they don't repent, God will send the northern armies upon them. But one day, it foreshadows the ultimate day of the Lord, which is in Joel 3, where he brings all the nations to surround Jerusalem and judges the nations. That's the future day of the Lord. So in the near term, they're like down payments to show that God is good for the far term, which is still in our future. Absolutely. Well said. Yes. Okay, so let's keep moving on. We have this until that cannot be for a non-event. There will be one day the fullness of the Gentiles. And notice he says in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of the God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. I don't remember if I read the whole thing, so I just want to make sure I read it. Let's talk about all Israel. Let me give you evidence that all Israel cannot be anything except national ethnic Israel. Why is this important? Because a prevailing view among many within the Reformed tradition. And again, we have a lot of affinity towards Reformed uh, soteriology and, and theology. But many in the Reformed tradition will say all Israel is the church. So it would be every believing Jew and every believing Gentile. There's a lot of problems with this. Let's begin with number one. And you may want to jot these down. Number one, nine times prior to the mention of Israel here, beginning in Romans 9:27. Paul has certainly used Israel for national ethnic Israel. I've asked people on many blogs, I've gone to their documentaries where they say documentaries on YouTube, and I question them. I say, show me one example. One, from Romans 9.27 to Romans 11.26, where Israel is something other than national ethnic Israel. And if you can't do it, I will assume you agree with me. Now, why is that important? Because when you come to all Israel in verse 26 without some contextual clue, you must assume it's the same national ethnic Israel. That's point one. Point number two, I don't know how you get around this. Who did the partial hardening happen to? The partial hardening happened to national ethnic Israel. Is some Reformed theologian going to say, well, the, the partial hardening happened to the church? Really? There was a partial hardening of believers in Christ, yet they became believers in Christ? Well, of course, that's an absurdity. The partial hardening is that of not allowing people to come to Christ. Who did that happen to? Well, it's national ethnic Israel. Okay, notice the contrast between this Israel and the Gentiles. All of a sudden, one verse later, Israel is no longer national ethnic Israel. It's all of a sudden the church, believers, Jews, and Gentiles. That's an absurdity. What's more is let's notice here that two verses later, It says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. The ekthroi, the enemies, is a referring back to what? To all Israel. This is the challenge I put on website after website after website after website on YouTube. I keep saying, show me how the church can be enemies of the gospel. How can that be? How can every believer in the gospel be an enemy of the gospel? Now, I want you to notice here, well, we'll come more to the understanding of verse 28 in a bit, but no, I just want you to see how absurd that would be. The enemies is referring, remember, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. Why does Paul say standpoint? I'll come to this, it's a preposition of reference. What Paul is saying is they're not enemies in the sense that they're going to grab a rifle and come and shoot you. They're not enemies in that they're trying to steal your food or your money. They're enemies in the sense that they don't believe the gospel. Kata, the preposition, with reference to the gospel, they are your enemies. He's qualifying what kind of enemies they are. They're not physical enemies going to nuke us or attack us physically. They are enemies of the gospel. How If the Reformed theologians are right, like John Calvin, that all Israel is in fact the church, Every believer, Jew and Gentile, how in the world are they enemies concerning the gospel? How can you be a believer of the gospel and an enemy of the gospel? It's an absurdity. And the natural antecedent for extroite enemies is all Israel. Right there, what have we just done? We've just proven all Israel has to be national, ethnic Israel. Why? Because they were the enemies of the gospel. It can't be even elect Israel. Why? If you're elect Israel, you're a believer. If you're a believer, can you be an enemy of the gospel? No. What have we just proven? We've proven all Israel must. It must. It has to be. It cannot be anything other than national, ethnic Israel. So when Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved, notice the and so, it's kai, hutos, and there's two ways of rendering kai hutos. Literally, you could render it in this manner. And so, thusly, if you're going to be King James-like. But the idea is it's either referring to the temporal time period in which Israel will be saved. Or the phrase is referring to what's called the mode. It's modal. It's in this way they're going to be saved. So, we have to wrestle with when he says, and so, is it referring to the timing when Israel will be saved as a temporal Or is it modal in this way? And I think the answer is yes. It's really both. It's really both. Why? Well, because we have an until. It's certainly temporal. It's certainly temporal. In other words, all Israel will be saved when? Well, when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. But it's also modal. Notice, just as it is written, now he cites Isaiah 59.20. So, yes, it has to do with the timing, temporal, when. When is it going to be? Well, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But it's also modal in the sense that it's the deliverer, that's the Messiah, will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Let me pull up my little box here. Does everyone see in the caps, that's a citation of Isaiah 59.20? Paul changes Isaiah 59, 20, and he does it deliberately for a reason. The original text was about the deliverer who would come to Zion at the first advent, this goel, and he would remove ungodliness from Jacob. Paul is now applying this text to the second coming of Christ. And he changes, in the Masoretic text, it'll say the deliverer will come to Zion, It doesn't matter if you're reading the Hebrew or the Septuagint, it's to Zion. That's what it says. Paul deliberately changes it to, say, from Zion. Why? Because the Zion that he's thinking about isn't the earthly Zion. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. So what he's saying is the deliverer, that's the Messiah, is going to come from heaven. Let me prove that to you. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12.22. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12.22 and you're going to see that Mount Zion, yes, there is one on earth, but there's also one in the heavenly realm. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. And that's certainly what Paul's referring to here. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12, 22. Notice here, the writer of Hebrews says, but you, these are regarding believers of the new covenant, he says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to the myriads of angels. Okay, so what is the Zion more than likely that Paul has in mind here? It's heaven. He's coming from heaven. Now, let's turn to one more text. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Where are we expecting Christ to come from when he's coming to rapture us and to begin the 70th week of Daniel? 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Please turn your Bibles there. 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We'll put this together. Notice he says... We are waiting for his son from where? From heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Wow, he rescues us from the wrath to come. You mean we don't go through it? No. So says the apostle Paul. So says the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who say we go through it are teaching different doctrine. Paul, the apostle who speaks for Christ, says, no, he's going to rescue us from the wrath to come. So where is Jesus coming from? He's coming from the heavenly Zion. And what is he going to do? He's going to remove ungodliness from Jacob. Okay? So what's being promised there is the restoration of Israel is tied to the parousia of Christ. The parousia of Christ is the 70th week of Daniel. It begins with the rapture of the saints. We're rescued from the wrath to come. And then what happens? You have the ensuing wrath. You have at the three and a half year mark the great tribulation. Christ then returns with the saints at the end to set up his earthly kingdom and destroy the forces that were surrounding Jerusalem. So Paul is tying the salvation of Israel to the Messiah coming from the heavenly Zion. So that's the mode. When does it happen? Well, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When does that? Well, we don't know. We don't know. But how does it happen? Well, the Messiah is going to do it. Yes, Dan. I just was wondering if you could clarify a little
1: bit all Israel. I think of, like, some of these people, some of the Jews that
0: I believe are ethnic, national, is Israel, that blaspheme God. All the yes. time, like this Yuval or whatever that guy's name is in Israel, um, are you saying that when that fullness of the Gentiles come in, if a, a guy like that is is alive at the time, he's going to be saved? What I'm making the claim, and I think what the Bible's teaching, is that at a time in the future, the majority report in national ethnic Israel will be that they believe in the Messiah. Mm-hmm. that in mass they're coming to faith in the Messiah, just as it prophesied in Zechariah 12.10, where the yeah. Lord says, I will pour out a spirit of supplication upon them, and they will mourn for the one whom they would pierced as one mourns for an only child. And that spirit of mourning that's going to be given to them is one of sorrow in which they realize for too long they've rejected the very Messiah that they pierced. That's a fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. That's precisely what's going to happen in the 70th week of Daniel. And you can see it at the three-and-a-half-year mark on, where remember God promises in Hosea that he's going to bring his people into the wilderness. Think about this idea of the wilderness. God brings the people into the wilderness in Exodus. Do they believe? No, they fall in the wilderness. John the Baptist comes on the scene during Jesus' earthly ministry. Where does he meet Him? He meets them in the wilderness. Do they believe? No, they're not going to believe. All of a sudden, at the 70th week of Daniel, where does God bring him? He brings him into the wilderness. Why? It's the final exodus. And this time, what are they going to do? They're going to believe. Why? Because Paul said, all Israel will be saved. Because it was the great promise, and he's going to bring them to faith. He's going to pour out the spirit of supplication, and they will finally believe and repent upon Jesus Christ, and just in time. The Messiah returns, according to Zechariah fourteen four. He sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. Half of the mountain will go to the north, and half of the mountain will go to the south. And my question to the preterist is, when did that happen in 70 A.D.? When did that happen in 70 A.D.? When did the Lord Jesus set his foot of the Mount of Olives and half of it split to the north and went to the south? What's more, when you get to Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 17, the nations that go up against Jerusalem, they're gonna be, there's going to be survivors. Not every man, woman, and child is in the army. They're going to be forced to go up and worship the Lord in Jerusalem. So I asked the preterists to say, you say this happened in 70 A.D. Can you show me where the nations are now being forced to go meet and celebrate the Feast of Booths and worship Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. And in fact, if they don't, no rain comes upon their land. Can you show me where that's happened during the church age? Well, they can't do it. Why? Because it didn't happen in 70 AD. So message after message after message after message after message on YouTube. I was watching. My knee was bad. I was all you know, hobbled up. I was sitting at home during the winter, and I couldn't believe the distortions. I'm like, I can't stand this anymore. That's why I had to start the channel. Brothers and sisters, I don't know how you get around all Israel being national, ethnic Israel. You can't do it without doing violence to the text. When are they going to be saved? Well, what's in the fullness of the Gentiles? How are they going to be saved when the Messiah returns of the 70th week of Daniel? That's how it's going to happen. Yes, Eric.
1: Oh, yeah, I just want to make sure I understand this, and I, this is what I've always understood anyway, so maybe I'm just using confirmation bias. It In Daniel's 70th week... All of national ethnic Israel who are alive, all of those people who are alive, you know, they will come to faith, you know. And so we, I, I might be wrong here, you know. I,
0: I'm sorry, who? who um, national
1: gonna... ethnic Israel who are alive.
0: Yeah, I, I don't think time, um, necessarily every individual.
1: Okay. All but of it'll the elect- be the
0: majority report. Yeah. yeah. And, so whereas uh, if you go there today, right. it's the oh, minority yeah. report. It's a small remnant, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they've, they've turned
1: in unbelief, uh, and then. Uh, but the, we, we do need to reach. We need to preach the gospel to Jewish people who are alive today. No one can exactly. say that somehow all of those Jews from. All time. I, I, there may be people that say that, but that would be wrong. Right? Yeah,
0: exactly. That is not Paul's point because it's national ethnic Israel after the fullness of the Gentiles. That's going to be a specific group. Absolutely. And it's in mass. And again, does that mean 100%? No, but it means it's the majority report rather than the minority report as it is today. Um, let me just build to the crescendo here uh, for the sake of time. we only got a couple of minutes left. I want you to see what Paul does with this. We've proven that there's a promised restoration of national ethnic Israel. Let's read Romans 11:29 through 33. Paul says for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This has to do with God's election. God's name is at stake. It's his promises. For just as you once were disobedient to God but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy on all. Now listen to how he crescendos again. Oh the depths of the riches, both of his wisdom and knowledge of God, of the I'm sorry, of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. How did Romans 8 end, when God promised that those whom he predestined he called, for those he called, he justified, for those he justified, he also glorified? He crescendoed, he said, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And he gave glory to God. What is he doing now? He's saying, oh, his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. He's giving glory to God. So Paul, the apostle who speaks for Christ, glorifies God in being faithful to his promises which culminate in the future restoration of Israel. And so is the future restoration of Israel something that has to do with God's glory? And if it is, I think it is then how is the attack on it not an attack on the glory of God? <laughs> Again, the average person who attacks the glory of God doesn't put on the hamburger suit and say, ah, 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 today I'm attacking the glory of God. They don't do it that way. They attack the promises. They attack the character of God. They attack who he is, what he's done, what he's promised. That's exactly what replacement theology is doing. The idea of the restoration of future Israel was not a subsidiary doctrine to the apostle Paul. It was absolute proof that God is not a liar and he's faithful to all of his promises. If God isn't faithful to national ethnic Israel, Paul's conclusion, I think, would be that he wouldn't be faithful to us. But, of course, God is faithful. That's the idea. And therefore, let us be those who contend for the promises. We don't have to guess whether someone's in Christ or outside of Christ. Let's leave that for the Lord. Unless someone is deliberately attacking Again, the person and work of Christ. Let's just leave that to Christ. Christ knows who are his. But we can be those as we're called to in Jude 3 to contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. I don't have to guess as to whether one is a believer or not, but I can contend for the promises and say, and I must, that this is an attack on the glory of God. You say that God isn't faithful to restore national ethnic Israel, you're attacking the very glory of God let's contend for those things. That's my point. So when it comes to this idea of dissensions, if you and I are contending for the promises of God we do it lovingly, you and I are not the problem. It's those who are distorting the promises of God. We are not the ones who are spreading dissension. It is those who are spreading false doctrine who are attacking the promises of God are the ones who are causing dissension. That's the case that I would make As we apply it to Proverbs chapter 6. Okay, so with that, anybody have a question or comment? I know we're right at the end. Okay, we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you that your promises are sure, not because of who we are, but because of who you are, Lord, that you're the faithful God, that even when we're faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. We thank you for this glorious day that will come when we'll be given our resurrection tied to the glorious restoration of all things, including your nation, Israel. We praise you for this. We pray that we'd persevere in light of it. We pray for Bob as he teaches us through 1 Corinthians. Lord, we pray for him, and we pray for us to have uh, ears to hear and that we'd also be doers of your word, living lives that are pleasing to you. As a result, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.